I think we have voraciously adopted technologies and we haven't really paused to consider, are they working for us? Are we using them in ways that help us or are they harming us? We have ancient Paleolithic brains. We have brains that have not biologically evolved to cope with constantly being bombarded with digital stimulus. Our brains, despite what we think, are physiologically incapable of multitasking. We are just consuming so much information. And our brain, the part of the brain in particular called our hippocampus, which is a bit like the brain's hard drive, it's the memory center, it hasn't got bigger to accommodate it. So it's not like we've added more RAM to our computer so we can store more in there. Our brain has not evolved. And so this is why we can't remember things like we used to. This is why we're so easily distracted. This is why we're feeling stressed. So many people are struggling, but we're not talking about it because there's almost like this passive acceptance. Well, this is how things are. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Here's today's question. Which has more influence over your day? Your priorities, focus and relationships or the demands and temptations of your digital device? Now, it's a hard question to answer or maybe it's easy and maybe you like the answer and maybe you don't. But either way, if influence requires focus, which we know that it does, then how we handle the digital distractions in our lives is one of the most important decisions that we can make. My guest today is on a mission to help professionals, parents, and their families tame their toxic tech habits, say that backwards, and stop being such a slave to the screen. Dr. Christy Goodwin provides research-based yet realistic advice and strategies so we can all use technology in a more productive and purposeful way without reverting to phone bans or constant digital detoxes, which, you know, hands up, guilty on that one. She is a global speaker and media commentator, as well as an author of my new obsession and handbook, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, a guilt-free guide to taming your tech habits and thriving in a digital world. This is actually Christy's second time on the podcast. The first time was just such a powerful, useful, practical conversation that rather than editing anything out, we actually turned it into a two-part series. And that really speaks to Christy's ability to combine humanity, practicality, eye-opening data and guilt-free wisdom on a topic that we all need to better understand. In this conversation, she expertly unravels why one of the most intimate relationships we have today is with a screen. Terrifying, I know. And how to turn that relationship from toxic into a powerful tool for focus. Her own experience as a mother of three, hiding in the bathroom and wondering why she would be the only one that can't handle the stress of being permanently on. I think we've all been there. And how that moment led her on a journey that inevitably ended up becoming the book 
and her own commitment to understanding digital burnout. Why digital detoxes don't work. This one, as you will hear, completely breaks my heart. And what to focus on instead. How to build a fortress around your focus. A fortress around your focus and whether that's focusing on work or the relationships that are crucial to our well-being. And finally, the non-negotiable boundaries she uses in her own life to tame the tech and how she deals with the inevitable pushback when you start pulling back. You know, I think that the, the biggest thing I got from this conversation was probably awareness. Now, I know that that doesn't sound like much at first, but the truth is that technology, the technology that we have now and whatever we are hurtling towards, it doesn't come with a handbook, not even from the creators themselves. We know it's addictive. We know it's detrimental to our well-being. We know it removes our ability and desire to be present with the people that we love. It gives us perpetual FOMO and comparison anxiety and puts us in a constant state of near recovery from never really ever switching off. And yet, we also know that we have never had more access to more connection, information, inspiration, power, convenience and unrestricted global community all from a little plastic device that we keep in our pocket so how do you hold both of those realities without making this new world and its pioneers the enemy without giving it way more power than it already has and you know the only place i know to start hence our conversation today is by working on my awareness to notice when my boundaries are starting to bend when my sense of connection is becoming more of a sense of comparison, when inspiration suddenly feels more like isolation, when the people that I love start blurring into the background behind people I neither know nor will ever meet. And then, and this is always the hard part about taking your power back, I usually take a deep breath, try to cut the shame, reset the boundaries and try to choose again. Never easy, but completely vital if we are going to dig deep and have the kind of influence that we want to have in our lives, in our business, and in our families. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes. There's links there and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven key areas and seven core questions that after 20 plus years of working with influencers and thought leaders, I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your own level of influence. Just pop in your email address and I promise it will be in your inbox in the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, caffeine up, put your focus on and soak up the strategies and wisdom of the incredible Dr. Christy Goodwin. Welcome back to the podcast, back to the podcast, Dr. Christy Goodwin. So lovely to have you back, huh? So good to be here. And you've been, you've been very busy since we last spoke and, you know, we both know the, the first time we spoke, I think, is the first two-parter I ever did. And I, and I look back and there was so much information in those two kind of part one and part two that we did. And I think also <laughs> we just had this beautiful conversation because we were both so heavily pregnant and we, we just sat back 
and and dive into it and so let's I'm really excited about doing it again today oh. and you have a new book and so many things going on in your world so but before we head there talk to me what's what's one idea practice piece of information that's heavily influencing your thinking right now the way you approach the world yeah this is an idea that germinated a couple of weeks ago and it hasn't left my mind so it's still in its infancy um, and it's far from being fully formed but I'm having so many serendipitous conversations with other people about this topic so I feel like it's important to to at least share even if if it's in its infancies um so we know lots of research at the moment is telling us we're seeing a huge gender well-being gap between men and women. Um, research, numerous studies are actually telling us that more women than men are experiencing stress, exhaustion and burnout. Now, as a female, this issue came to a head during International Women's Day when I was asked to speak about the theme of cracking the code. And I started to look at this gender well-being gap and Curious Christie started to say why. Like, yes, the evidence is telling us this, but why? So at the moment, I've been playing around with three possible, and I want to like highlight these are really, you know, I think they're plausible, but they're still very premature concepts. Okay, so this Christie hypothesis at the moment is the reason we are seeing this gender well-being gap. I think first and foremost is, and the research again corroborates this, is that women, despite the advancements we're making in terms of, you know, sharing, caring and domestic responsibilities, study after study still tells us that women bear the brunt of the majority of domestic and caring responsibilities. And it doesn't necessarily just mean caring for children. Um, it can mean caring for aging parents, caring for um, siblings, caring for um, unwell family members. So we know um, unequivocally that women are still sharing that having the lion's share of that load. Now, not only does that obviously have impacts on our well-being, but I think coupled with this is that there is a digital load that comes with these caring and responsibilities. And I'm colloquially referring to this as the mother load, like as in the mother expletive, the big load that we are invisibly carrying often. Um, and it comes with, you know, if you are the person that gets the bill for your um, services, you not only get the email, but today you get the text message to telling you that your account will be debited in three days. And then you get another text message and an email telling you that your account was in fact debited. Um, you are the parent who tends to be, not always, and I this is certainly not a man shaming or a critical opportunity, but women tend to be on the WhatsApp group for kids. They're the ones getting the preponderance of emails from school or age care facilities. So I think not only do we have the mental load, which has often been the case, but today that has been amplified because we've also got an added digital load. So that's part one of why I think we're seeing this gap. The second reason is that I think there is a very false and, and but still very um, relevant misguided perception that women are still less ambitious than men. And in our attempt to prove that theory wrong, women are tending, I believe, to overcompensate. And I call this digital presenteeism. So we want to be seen from an optics perspective to be, you know, the team player and committed to our work. So we reply to the email at 11 o'clock at night and we feel that we need to respond to, to every Teams chat that comes our way. So again, there's an added digital load with that. The third reason, um, I think, and they, as I said, still I'm trying to massage how they all fit together. But again, research from the World Economic Forum tells us that Far more women than men are driving 
if not initiating diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives in the workplace. So many women are taking charge of the wellbeing program, but research tells us that in 40% of cases, this work is never acknowledged in performance reviews. So the irony is that women are trying to drive wellbeing initiatives, but sacrificing their own wellbeing in the process. So I just, as I said, still in its infancy, but this is an idea that hasn't left me. So when something sticks, I either have to figure out what's going on or I have to let it pass and then circle back to it. So they're my initial ruminations. Um, I don't have an answer, um, but I think that could be one. And again, we can't deny, you know, we've been through a global pandemic. Um, we know that many of the support structures that once supported women fell away during the pandemic. Um, we also know we're facing un economic uncertainty, so whether women are more primed to be concerned about that than men, there could be a whole lot of other variables, but I just, that's an idea that's stuck for me for a little while. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm very blessed in so much as, you know, I have a, a partnership in my home that that tends to be, that tends towards equality when we can get it there, you know, depending on chapters of life. And however, I will say, and I think that my my husband would, would testify to it as well quite happily because it's a conversation that has happened many times between us, which is the conversation that um, I carry the brunt of the load when it comes to communication. You know, the the WhatsApp groups, the the emails, the his family, my family, his his the wives of his friends organizing things between him and his friends, but just cutting the guys out for some reason and and like organizing that in the background, the parents of our children, um, grandparents, nannies, babysitters, school, you name it, government. And we had a conversation about it recently, actually. And um, and he said something that was really interesting and it kind of stuck with me. And I'll add it to this conversation, but I don't have any more answers than you do. He said, I think that you bring it upon yourself. He said, I think you put your hand up when you don't need to. Um, I think you take part when your taking part isn't necessary. Um, I feel like you... Um, answer when it's not convenient for you and therefore you set up a dynamic where you need to keep answering when it's not convenient for you um he said you know i'm more than capable of of having conversations but i have far stronger boundaries and so you are the easier person to reach and you are the easier person to go backwards and forwards with and that decision is inherently yours now my husband's well known for not beating around the bush <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to a conversation about, you know, taking personal responsibility. And whether you believe is right or whether you believe is wrong, I think that there is something there. I think that there's something there that I can look at in terms of how I manage my own time and my own distractions um, and whether I'm in the loop or out of the loop. How have you, ruminating on this, made any changes in that area? And we're going to get to digital and distractions and all of that. What changes, what changes could you, would you or have you made? Yeah, so interestingly, just last night, my husband, when I was lamenting, I, I calculated yesterday between, and given I have three children, or we have three children, um, I was the recipient of 92 WhatsApp messages yesterday alone for their various school groups, sporting groups, um, family chats, talk about infobesity, like that is just so much information. 
And so I was lamenting this fact last night. So my husband, very pragmatic person, a bit like your husband, it sounds like, he said, okay, ask for me to be put in X, Y, and Z groups. You exit those groups, and I'm going to take full responsibility for those particular WhatsApp groups. And initially, I will acknowledge I struggled with that. I said, well, I might stay in there just in case you miss something. And he's like, well, that's going to defeat the purpose of me being there. So I do agree. There's almost like this lag of us almost wanting to make these changes, but almost these residual feelings like, will they be organized enough? Um, will they miss something? And I mean, let's face it, it's only kids sport. Like this is not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. Like, so I think there is still some gendered norms that are reminiscent. Like we haven't eroded those at all. Um, some of the things that I've really done to put some digital boundaries, because this is something, even though I talk about this, even though I research this, I struggle with from time to time. So for me, one of the life-saving things that I've done in recent years is that I have turned off um, all WhatsApp notifications during the day. So I now have um, most notifications bundled on all platforms, not just WhatsApp. So social media, I don't get notifications, period. Um, but for my communication tools um, that I use professionally and personally, I've bundled notifications. So I now nominate what time or time, some, some of them I check twice a day, but I choose when those nominations come to me because I know constantly being pinged and, and digitally distracted has a huge impact on our stress, hence why I think so many of us are, are feeling stressed and exhausted, and it puts a huge impact on our productivity. You know, once we are distracted, the research tells us it takes the average adult around 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back into that deep focus state. And it may seem really benign, like you might say, well, Christy, it's just a WhatsApp message. You know, you may not even read it. But if you are distracted whilst, let's say, you're doing some data analysis or you're writing an annual report, something that's really focused work, if you are distracted, it takes us so long. It's called the resumption lag to get back into that state. And we also know because the way our brain is designed, biologically, we're designed to go and forage, hunt and seek for information. We're designed to go and get it. But today, when information is constantly being thrust at us, alerts, notifications, pings and dings, it stresses our brain. You know, our brain cannot differentiate between a TikTok notification and a tiger chasing us. So I think we're using things the wrong way. So for me, bundling notifications, turning off non-essential notifications, like you really don't need to know what an ex-colleague's now posting on LinkedIn. So most certainly turning off social media, I think we don't need to be notified about emails. I think that's a completely redundant use of notification. Uh, and also using um, a technique called VIP notifications. So when I want to go into focus mode, when I don't want to be distracted, be that, you know, Teams chats or emails or WhatsApp messages, whatever it is, when I go and activate my focus mode, I have reassurance knowing that people on my VIP list will still get through. So my children's childcare centre, schools, my husband, um, my EA can all get through that do not disturb mode or focus mode, but everybody else gets blocked. So I have that peace of and mind. That's the do not disturb function on your phone. Correct? Well, it's a, it, they all have different names and it depends on what operating system you're on and if you're an iOS or Android. Some of them are now calling it focus mode. Some of them are now calling it do not disturb mode. And you, you can now, the technology is so sophisticated that you can actually remove some of the thinking. So you don't even now have to manually set this up. You can have it sync with your calendar so that it knows when you're doing writing or when you're doing data analysis or when you're in a meeting or when you're on a date or, you know, with your partner 
activate this do not disturb or focus mode and you can have those rules set up so that those people on that VIP list get through but everybody else gets blocked. You can customise it so an automatic text message goes back to the person explaining that you're on focus mode or do not disturb mode and you can, you know, depending on your role, um, depending on your life circumstances, you can give them instructions. So some of the platforms give you the option if they call twice in succession, they'll get through that do not disturb mode. Other tools give you the option of writing literally the word urgent. I know you can now do this with Slack um, and I think with Teams. Um, I, I say to people, you know, don't be the boy who cried wolf here um, because once it loses its potency, you know, if you send off a message and write urgent and it really wasn't, people will disregard that. But there's things we can start to do to take away some of the decision making around this and I guess automate some of those processes too. I mean, my phone is a... Uh... I am well known for um, for having very strong boundaries around my phone and even I struggle. You know, I have all notifications yeah. off apart from text messages. It's on do not disturb between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m. Um, with the exception of some family members. Love that. Um, but even that, you know, even that, I still find it, I still find it hard to hold those boundaries. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about your book. Now, the book is called Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. And I just thought that was so interesting, uh, the title. And so indicative of, you know, the almost intimate relationship that we have <laughs> with our screens now, with our phones now. Why, why do we need to talk? Why do we, all, you know, metaphorically need to sit our devices, our laptops, our wearables down and have a discussion? Why is this almost a breaking point? Oh, I love that term. And I, I think we are at a critical juncture in time. I think not all of us um, and not every day, but I think many of us have really developed some unhealthy digital dependencies. If I'm really blunt, I think if we critically examined our digital habits as adults, many of us would admit that we are slaves to our screens. We salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get like an alert or notification. You know, research tells us the average Australian is spending nearly 17 years of their life on their phones like that is such a sobering statistic 17 years of our life just on our phone that's not your laptop that's not your desktop computer and let's say that's going to shift very soon you know we've got artificial intelligence wearable technologies like our digital load is is going to increase and given the new ways of working with distributed teams we are going to be i think more digitally reliant than ever um so the technology has just permeated i think every facet of our lives, professionally and personally. I often say tech has got its tentacles into every single part of our lives, but it's also not going to be uninvented. Like it is not going to go away. It is here to stay. So it's all about, I believe, how do we foster a healthy, productive, um, helpful relationship with our devices so that we're not a slave to our screen. Our, our screens and our tech, you know, screen soon will become an obsolete concept because we'll have these new wearable technologies, etc. But I think that many of us, our, our screens are our servant. Like they should be our servant. Um, but we, I think, in many instances, are our screens and our devices master. Like we're not being the master. We are being that slave. And we are using technology in ways that is completely misaligned with how we're designed as humans. You wrote in your book, as knowledge workers or creators, we've been following a playbook that doesn't work. I just wanted to, to dig in specifically about why it doesn't work. I mean, we've talked about overwhelm, we've talked about overload. 
what else about the current situation, we'll get into some solutions, doesn't work right now? I think two things are happening at the same time. And this is why so many people are experiencing what you describe then as overwhelmed. I, in the book, I use the acronym OUSTED. And I think that many people at this point in time are feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling under the pump, stressed, time poor, exhausted and distracted. And I think our tech habits are a significant contributing factor to this. They're not the only reason. Again, we can't ignore the fact we've been through a, a global pandemic. We're facing uncertain economic and political times across the globe. There's a whole lot of other confounding variables. But I think our tech habits, again, professionally and personally, and let's face it, those boundaries have become obliterated in the last couple of years. I think our tech habits are fueling this exhaustion, stress and distraction. And I think it's two things happening at the same time. The first thing that I think has happened is that our tech habits and behaviours that have crept in, you know, they've sort of just happened over time. I think our tech habits are adding little micro stresses to our days. Now, on their own, these little micro stresses would be quite benign. They'd be really harmless. I'm talking here about things like alerts, notifications, video calls, um, looking at a really small surface area. When we have a very narrow view, it, it activates the stress response in our brain because as humans we're designed to sort of have a dilated gaze we're designed to look off into the distance so um, out of the micro stressor that we're often engaging in is multitasking you know we now know most people are on video meetings triaging their inbox or their, their chat communication tools so we've added these little micro stresses now as humans we are designed to cope with stress stress often gets a bad rap and it shouldn't but we are biologically designed to cope with really short bursts of stress and we are designed to resolve the stress cycle. So a tiger would have chased us, we would have run into a cave, short burst of stress, completed the stress cycle. But in today's digitally demanding world where our day is permeated by pings and dings and video calls and multitasking and having a very narrow gaze, we're in this constant heightened state of stress and we're not resolving it. The second thing that is happening at the same time is that our tech habits have completely annihilated, I would say, or adversely impacted, if I don't want to be as dramatic, some of the biological buffers that we used to naturally have baked into our days as humans that helped us to manage stress, overwhelm and distraction. I'm talking here about really fundamental biological needs, things like sleep physical movement, sunlight, um, human connection, even the way that we breathe has been altered by our digital habits. Um, Actually, I read that in your, in your book, sleep, yeah. uh, not, sorry, not sleep apnea, email apnea. Yes. Holding yes. your breath while you're answering emails. And it was so interesting because I had your book in front of me and I was kind of on my phone and I was, I swapped back over to your book. I was multitasking. I'm sorry. Because um, <laughs> I was taking notes. And then I, I kind of, suddenly realized that my stomach was tensed and my breathing was very shallow. What break down for me, what's happening there? Why yeah. does it make our breathing worse? Yes. And I want to point out, these are some of the really subtle ways. We're often not even aware that we're doing this until we have these sorts of conversations. So um, email apnea has been clinically studied. And what they found was that when people go into their inboxes, we hold our breath. We dump a whole lot of cortisol, our pupils dilate, our heart rate accelerates, let alone if we see, you know, when we see that sender from perhaps a tricky client or a colleague that, you know, you're having a, a tricky conversation with, that can also elevate our stress. We also know that when we have a very narrow view, 
um, we breathe in different ways. So as humans, we should sigh roughly every five minutes. That's a natural biological mechanism that helps us regulate our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. So a natural way of us regulating our stress response. So it's two inhalations through our nose and an exhalation through our mouth. And we do it and we're not even aware that we're doing it. So roughly every five minutes is sort of the normal cadence of when we're in a, a normal, relatively unstressed state. But when we go on our screens, and it doesn't matter if it's a laptop or a phone, our sigh rate falls off the cliff. What does this mean? Exactly what you were just explaining, Julie. We breathe in a really shallow way, and that shallow breathing triggers our sympathetic nervous system, that, that fight, flight, or flee response. And so we're in this heightened state of stress. Now, not only does it impact our stress, and I think we're seeing that tangibly, but this is also why we're finding it so hard to focus. Yes, you know, alerts and notifications distract us, but when our brain doesn't have the cognitive resources to sustain its focused attention span, we will succumb to those distractions or we'll open another tab um, or we'll start to, to oscillate between emails and a spreadsheet. And so this, I think, is those two things, little micro stresses and a decline in those buffers that have left us feeling the way that many of us are at the moment. I mean, you're, you're a mother of three and you're, you know, a very in demand expert in your field. And so when I read, there's a particular paragraph that I read in your book that really struck me. And it said, in recent years, I've had moments where I've hidden in the bathroom and wondered why am I the only one who can't handle the stress? What am I doing wrong? And I can relate to that. I think a lot of people can relate to that where you're like, why why is it feeling so hard to have 17 different conversations at the same time across five time zone with two, <laughs> with two small children and a family and an extended family? And, you know, everybody else just seems to find it so easy. Everybody else just seems to be floating through. Why do so many of us feel like we're the only ones who are struggling? And this is men and women are struggling with this lack of digital boundaries. I think none of us are really talking about it. I think we have voraciously adopted technologies and we haven't really paused to consider, are they working for us? Are we using them in ways that help us or are they harming us? And so I think we've been almost, I often call it like swept up in a tsunami of screens. We sort of, you know, let's try this. And, and, and the rate of change is exponential. In the online world, there's something called the penetration rate. And the penetration rate describes how many years it takes a digital technology to penetrate to 50 million global users. So believe it or not, dial-up internet took around 13 years until 50 million people adopted it. Facebook will reportedly took four years. YouTube took two years. Angry Birds took about 35 days. Pokemon Go took one to two days. And uh, a couple of years ago, there was a death by suicide streamed on a social media platform. And it took a couple of minutes until 50 million people watched that. So the technology is changing at exponential rates. And in recent times, you know, we, we all got excited. Some of us got terrified by the, the prospect of ChatGPT. And within a couple of weeks, we're now already talking about ChatGPT4. Like there's just such rapid change. So I think that's one reason the technology is just changing and, and our brains haven't evolved. The second thing relates to our brains is that I often say we have ancient Paleolithic brains. We have brains that have not biologically evolved to cope with constantly being bombarded with digital stimulus. We have not evolved to multitask. Um, men, public apology, you are right. Women, we've got it wrong. Our brains, despite what we think, are 
physiologically incapable of multitasking. And we are just being, I, I call it in the book, I use the word infobesity. We are just consuming so much information, so much so that I think some people today feel like they are the, that emoji with the head exploding. That often describes like very aptly how a lot of us feel. And the research estimates, and it is a very rough estimate, but the research suggests that the average adult is consuming 74 gigabytes worth of data professionally and personally a day. That, that's more than ancestors would have consumed in a lifetime. And our brain, the part of the brain in particular called our hippocampus, which is a bit like the brain's hard drive, it's the memory center, it hasn't got bigger to accommodate it. So it's not like we've added more RAM to our computer so we can store more in there. Our brain has not evolved. And so this is why we can't remember things like we used to. This is why we're so easily distracted. This is why we're feeling stressed because it's almost like the equivalent, I sometimes say, of getting a, a fire hydrant and spraying water out of the fire hydrant and giving someone a little plastic cup, although that's very unenvironmentally friendly these days, but a small cup to catch it in and say, look, it's falling out. What am I doing wrong? Well, you're not doing anything wrong, but it's biologically you know, impossible for you to catch that much information. So I think we need to be having transparent conversations. And I will point out, this is an issue for females and males. This is this sort of no gender gap here. So many people are struggling, but we're not talking about it because there's almost like this passive acceptance. Well, this is how things are. I mean, you only need to ask somebody how they are today. And their answers are usually the two Bs, busy or burnt out. I'm finding people are responding that way. So I think there's a lot of suffering in silence. Um, and almost a passive acceptance that this is just the norm now and it shouldn't be. So let's, let's talk about what we can do. You know, this this podcast is about influence and all, and all the many things that, that change our ability to be able to have a greater influence in our lives and the world in general and our careers. And I think for me, this topic is huge because the only way you can have any level of influence in your life is if you A, have the resources to call upon to be able to see it through, if you can focus on the influence that you want to have, and if you can be present both with another human being and also with the stories in your own mind that may well be holding you back. And all of those things rely on an ability to shut out distraction and really focus. So I think that this is a, is a massive conversation and I think that it's one of the things that holds a lot of people back, this constant juggling and, you know, never feeling like you can put it all down and actually ask yourself the question, what do I want? How do I get there? Who do I need to speak to? What's the best way to do that? You know, what are the obstacles? How will I overcome them? And what's in my tank right now to be able to do all of those things? Um, first thing I wanted to talk to you about when we start talking, looking at, okay, what can we do is... <laughs> Why digital detoxes don't work. Now, I know this is true, but I really hate that it's true because I want it to be true. <laughs> you want the silver bullet. I, just, I really want to just be able to press off and then on again. It just, it fits with my, you know, I can be a bit you know, adrenaline junkie. I've got no interest in roller coasters, but I love creation and business and ideas and momentum and speed. And I would really want it to be true that I can just switch off for a period of time like press on again but I know that it doesn't work so talk about why digital detoxes don't work 
Yeah, they don't. And whilst they look like they should be a simple solution, they're a bit like a juice detox. We know similar things happen. It often creates a binge and a purge cycle. So we go offline for three days, or if you're really lucky, three weeks, and you come back to a bulging inbox. Um, a study was published at the end of 2022, and it asked knowledge workers who were planning on taking annual leave over the summer period here in Australia and New Zealand, how many of them were going to still check emails on their annual leave. And overwhelmingly, it was in the 70s, most of the respondents said, yes, I will still be checking emails because the thought of coming back to my inbox on day one after my annual leave, you know, I will contemplate email bankruptcy. Like it will just be too much. So people are not getting the psychological detachment that they once had. So we have to make sure that we create, I think, sustainable changes. And the research conclusively tells us that going cold turkey or going on a, a detox doesn't create long-term sustainable change. And the harsh reality is I think it's a luxury for many people to go offline. You know, technology is so integral to our lives now. Like you may not want to be checking emails on your annual leave, but chances are you'll probably need to use the Maps app on your phone. You'll probably be messaging your friends about where you're going to catch up. You might want to archive some of the moments on your, your camera roll. So I think it creates some artificial goals or aspirations for people when the reality is it's about how do we create long-term habits. Um, this is backed up by a study, and a study was done a couple of years ago where they had one cohort of people who had to um, or were invited to cut back their social media use by a, at least an hour a day. They had another group who were asked to do the detox, so cut it out all completely. Now, of course, they measured at the end of the study, and they found similar habits at the end of the study. But what in terms of reduced usage? But the researchers went back four months after the study had ended, and overwhelmingly, the group that just did the one-hour reduction had by far superior sustained habits. The group that did the, the digital detox or went cold turkey without it went back to their old habits. So it doesn't create long-term sustainable change. So I think we need to look at how can we live with it um, rather than live without it. And also, you know, it's a tool, right? Technology is a tool. It's neither good nor bad. Um, it depends it depends on how you use it, how frequently you use it, and, in, and whether you can use it in a healthy way. Um, so digital detoxes don't work. Reductions do. And I know you talk a lot about micro habits, about developing different micro habits. Can you run through some of the micro habits that you found to be the most effective when it comes to actually creating more of a wall between us and our digital lives? Sure. So for me and for a lot of the clients I work with, this is the one that comes back time and time again as being one that's relatively easy to implement but yields massive results. So I feel like I'm selling steak knives when I'm telling you this, um, but it really does work. Um, so what I say to people is I believe we have to where we can, and this is not a perfect model, this does not happen for me every day, but where I do have sort of some control over my day, um, I try to structure my day so I do my most productive work, the most mentally taxing, Cal Newport refers to this as deep work, during my mental prime time. And your mental prime time or your, your sort of focus period of the day is biologically determined by something called your chronotype. So our chronotype dictates when we are naturally most focused and alert. It also dictates when we naturally want to fall asleep. 
And this is a, a, a biological um, mechanism. It's determined by something called our PER3 gene. So you can't change it. It, it does shift throughout your lifespan. Um, but basically, you have a, a set biologically determined time of the day when you're more likely to be focused and alert. And most of us intuitively know this. We, you know, we've got uh, most people are what we call um, middle birds, and their energy sort of peaks between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. So the traditional workday, the nine to five, worked relatively nicely for them. But we also have a proportion of the population who are our, um, our night owls. They are the people that fire on all cylinders late in the afternoon and into the evening. And we all know who they are. They're your annoying friends who suggest you come over for dinner at 8 p.m. And, and you're, if you're a, a, an early bird or a middle person, you're thinking, my goodness, I should be asleep at that time, not having dinner. They're your colleagues who are firing off emails at, at midnight. Um, and then we have, a, at the other end, a spectrum of people who are our early risers. And their peak performance window is very early in the morning, um, up until around morning tea time. Now, before the pandemic, it was estimated that 88% of knowledge workers, and I recognise this is a privileged position for knowledge workers, frontline workers, given they're often facing customers or clients or patients, don't often have the, this, this option of, of choosing a work schedule. But I think that the biggest silver lining of the pandemic is we've now got much more locus of control, not for all roles in an organisation, but for many of us, we've got more flexibility around when we work, schedule flexibility. We've had too much conversation around location flexibility, about where we work. Important, but the biggest blessing, the biggest opportunity is around structuring our workdays to suit our chronotypes. I mentioned just before I didn't finish the sentence that before the pandemic, it was estimated that 88% of people had work schedules that conflicted with their chronotype before the pandemic. We've now got an opportunity to course correct that, given, again, again not all roles and not all um, people have this, but most of us do have greater flexibility around when we work. So my trick is to do your most productive work during your chronotypes peak performance window. So it's about aligning our chronotype sort of cadence with our work structures and, and demands. And the other part of this is that during that focus period, we have to build a fortress around our focus. We have to take back control and, and eliminate as many distractions as possible. Now we always tend to blame digital distractions, but our thoughts, our ruminations, and our colleagues or our partner or our pets or our kids can also be equally as distracting. And I'm hearing from many people at the moment who are returning to the office, some or, or most of the week, are saying that they're finding there's almost like this novelty factor that everybody's back in or they haven't seen someone for a while. And it's chatty Kathy or talkative Tom who are just as distracting as the email pings and calendar reminders. So in, in summary, it's it's structuring your workday where you can to do your most productive work during your peak performance time. And that is the window of the day where we have to be really regimented about eliminating as many distractions as possible. You've also talked about, which I love because you, you're so practical with your guidance. You, you've, you've talked about, you know, uninstalling unnecessary apps from your phone, you know, shutting down the tabs on your computer. I am the worst. My tech guy looked at my computer the other day and he was like, do you, do you really need 23 tabs? <laughs> it's like, not right now, I don't, but I might. I might There's come a name for you. There's a name. They call, they call people like you tab hoarders. It's an awful name. Um, uh, yeah. I'm a total tab hoarder. <laughs> there are at least 15 articles I will read. 
at some stage. One day. <laughs> one day. So yeah, can I give you a working on can it. I give you one quick tool there that I don't know if I mentioned in the book. I love so I a bit like you, I love being able to read articles. Um I have started using a tool in the last couple of years. I use a couple of tools, but one I call is called Pocket. Are you familiar with Pocket? No, I so, po- so Pocket's a digital archiving tool. So it allows you to archive and you can, of course, put tags so you can retrieve articles accordingly later on. But not only can you archive videos, podcasts, blog posts, journal articles, news stories, but this app will also allow you now to read back written content. So you can pop it in your pocket, literally archive it, and at a time that is more convenient, you can listen back to any written content as well. So it reads it to you. It will read it to you. So it doesn't even have to have the audio transcript in the post or in the article. It has the the AI capabilities of reading written text back to you. I love that. I'm going to check that out. Um, The other one that I saw you mentioned was Grayscale. And I've heard people talk about that before, which is having your phone on grayscale. Um, Why does that matter? It seems like such a silly thing. Like, why does it matter whether the things on our phone are color or whether they're in black and white? Yeah. And grayscale, I often say, do it not for the whole day. Um, It will drive you bonkers. But again, during that focus period, turn your phone to grayscale. I'm the first person that will declare that Instagram is really boring in grayscale. The reason we do it is that our brain biologically responds to color. And we have got psychologists and neuroscientists that have basically figured out the science behind this. When Steve Jobs released the first iPod touch, do we all remember iPods? At a press release, he said that they made the colors on the iPod so psychologically appealing that they knew that users would want to possibly lick their phones. That tells you something Yeah, about the persuasive use of colour. And in recent years, you may have noticed big tech companies like Instagram and Google have changed the colour palette. Do you remember the Instagram icon years ago? It was a really brown, creamy, beige sort of icon. It's not anymore. It's more a red and an orange. Again, the reason our notification bubbles are red on many instances is because red is a psychological trigger for danger, urgency, importance. Um, So turning your phone to grayscale basically stops your brain from being lured in. Um, So it it, it associates it with this is much more boring. Um, It's much less enticing. So we're much less likely to go on there. Another thing that you mentioned was changing passwords. And it was funny, I when I interviewed James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits, and we were talking about how he wrote his book and how he carved out the time. And he said that he changed all the passwords to his social media accounts. I can't remember if it was his email or not now. Um, but basically anything that he f- considered to be a distraction, he he gave it to his EA and that was it. He gave it to his EA and he said, please change these passwords um, and do not give them to me until this date when I'm supposed to have finished this manuscript. And so she didn't, he said there was a couple of weekends there where he had social things and he said, look, I really need them this weekend, but you know, feel free to change them again on Monday. Do we do we need to start going to that extreme of, of changing our passwords and everything to actually, I feel like we should be, and I'm sat here as a grown-up and I am not, capable of somehow not needing that, but it doesn't seem to be true. 
Well, I think generally what I suggest people do is to create more friction between you and the technology that you feel like you're tethered to. So whether that's changing passwords, and again, not all of us have an EA or a PA that could manage it. Some people use spouses um, who know won't cave into your you know, requests and pandering to, to give you back the password. Um, other things I often recommend to, to create that friction or that distance is you may not want to create passwords, but just logging out of the app. So one of the reasons we get sucked into the digital vortex, particularly on our touch screen so easily, is that there's not many rudimentary steps for us to go on anymore. You know, we don't even have to type in passcodes. If we've got facial recognition, we can often just pick up our device and off we go down that digital rabbit hole. So again, depending on how good your memory is, if you've got digital dementia or not, um, those intermediary steps that are really annoying where you're trying to say, hang on, is this my maiden name with my favourite child, with my favourite number combination for my password, um, those intermediary steps might nudge us or irritate us enough not to go on. Um, some other people say they've taken social media or email and or email off their phones and only now check it on a desktop or a laptop. So again, just creating more intermediary steps. Um, another technique that creates a bit more friction, I often recommend in a really simple strategy but has profound differences, is taking your tech temptations off the home screen of your phone. So whether your tech temptation or your weakness is TikTok or Instagram, or maybe you're an avid sports fan and it's the sports app or it's a news site, when we unlock our phone, perhaps to do something functional, if we see that icon and again, the color choice, if there's a notification bubble, we get lured in. So Hugh Van Kylenberg from the Resilience Project says not only should you drag it off your home screen, he suggests tucking it away and putting it in a folder of called things I'll later regret. So each time you load the app, you get a little nudge of guilt, um, but you've had to go and, uh, go and look for it. So it's just not there on that prime position. I, I want to just acknowledge an elephant in the room for me at the moment. You know, we're having all these discussions about how difficult we find it as grown-ups as fully formed human beings, as fully formed as, you know, as we may or may not be, and are working, which is our caveat. It begs, it's really hard to conceive if we find it this difficult, how difficult our children, our teenagers must be finding it to deal with the overwhelm, to deal with the infobesity, to deal with the, you know, the constant stream of conversations, of information. How can we as parents or mentors or aunties or uncles, how can we set better examples or set better boundaries for the children that we, that we look after? I'm so glad you brought this up because this was one of the reasons why I wrote this book. My initial research and, and speaking expertise was around speaking to parents and health professionals around the impact tech was having on kids and teens. And I think for years as adults, we've been quick to wag the finger and say they're addicted and they can't put it down and they throw techno tantrums, but we've never paused to examine our digital habits. And I think in many instances, adults are struggling as much, if not perhaps more than our kids and teens, but we justify a lot of our tech habits under the guise of work. You know, I need to be on, I need to check emails, or I've got clients that need to reach me. Or, And in many instances, tech has created, I believe, a, a culture where we feel we need to be always on and feel we need to be always responsive. And that's just not the case for many people. There are some roles, I acknowledge some jobs where that is an expectation. 
But I think for most of us, that's not the case. And we have to be good digital role models. The human brain has something in it called mirror neurons. And mirror neurons mean we are biologically wired as humans to imitate and copy. And this built-in biological mechanism is active from within about 15 minutes of a baby being born. And the way we know this is that if you were to poke your tongue out at a newborn baby after it's been fed, so it's not the rooting reflex where it's trying to feed, but if you poke your tongue out, do it at a newborn baby in the shops, but preferably when it's on the parent's shoulder so you don't get arrested. Um, but if you poke your tongue out, I guarantee a baby will poke their tongue back at you. Why? We poke our tongues back because of those mirror neurons. We are designed to imitate and copy. And so we can be telling our kids, put your phone down, turn your gaming console off, stop watching the TV. But if we're not doing that, if we're not walking the talk, then our kids will imitate those behaviours or they'll get frustrated thinking that there are inconsistencies um, in our behaviours. And in the book, I, I shared a story with permission to share of a, a mum who picked her daughter up from school and her daughter turning and saying to her mum, mummy, how much do you earn per hour? And at first, her mum was quite proud because she thought, my daughter's ambitious. She wants to know my, my, my hourly rate. And she explained that she earned a salary and would have to do some calculations. She tucked her daughter into bed that night, having done the calculations. And she said, sweetheart, this is how much I earn per hour. Why do you ask? And her daughter innocently turned to her mum and said, because I'd like to buy an hour of your time without your phone. Our kids are seeing this. Um, and I worry, we're, as adults, we're missing what I call micro, Maggie Dent uses the term micro moments of connection, the little bonding moments that we have with our kids and teens. You know, if you've got a teenager, when they finally pick up their towel and hang it over the bathroom, the rail in the bathroom, you know, when your child's finally kind to their sibling, we miss those little bonding moments. You know, at swimming lessons, when your child's finally nailed the tumble turn and they come up and their goggles are filled with water and their cap's halfway off their head and they look up at you to give you the thumbs up, but you miss the moment. And so I, I just think we have to, and I'm going to acknowledge this is hard. As someone who researches, talks, um, and writes about this, I find this just as hard. But I think we have to get this right. And I think one part of this is acknowledging to our kids and teens, we find this hard too. And I think if we can come up with, I often talk about families creating some digital guardrails, but come up with your expectations. What are your digital parameters? Um, and hold each other to account. I think there are promising things that we can do. Mm. You know, as you said before, we're we're at the beginnings here. You know, this is not we've 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 not peaked here. You know, the the technology that's coming our way, the the devices that are coming our way, the integration between ourselves and the devices and our lives. You know, I feel like if we can't mentor, if we can't mirror for our children, what healthy boundaries look like, what healthy connection looks like, what a healthy relationship between ourselves and the world without distraction looks like, it's going to be very difficult for them to regulate on on a foundation of, you know, mentors and leaders that haven't been able to regulate. What you, you have three children, three beautiful boys. Um, what are yours? What are your digital guardrails that you have? Because I know you've got, you've got a son who's just started high school. You've got a little you know, you've got a lot of, of age range in there to try and work with. 
Yeah, so we've come up with some guardrails as a family. And my kids certainly use tech. I, I would hate people to be under the misguided perception that I'm a bit like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates and a no-tech or a low-tech parent. My kids certainly do use it. Um, but we've come up with, I guess, our non-negotiables. So we've come up with some boundaries around what they're allowed to use. Um, so when they come to me and say, can I please have TikTok or can I please have whatever their digital request is, because I'm the only person in all of Australia or all of you six or or all of you four that doesn't have it, um, I'm okay with saying no. And I, I want to remind parents, if they're listening, it's okay for your child to say, you suck and I hate you. You know, if your eight-year-old son came home from school one day and said, mum, dad, how about the keys to the car? I'd like to go and do burnouts out the front. We would say no. You know, your 11-year-old daughter comes home from school one day and says, how about a shot of tequila with dinner? Our answer would be no. So I think we've got to remember it's okay for us to say no to our kids' digital requests. So we've got boundaries around what apps and games they can play. Can I acknowledge that what we had for – it's a bit like with kids and their birth order and, and the food that you serve up. You know, your firstborn child's getting all organic, um, home-cooked meals. Um, I saw a great meme recently, and it was firstborn child eats a bug in the playground, rush them to emergency, observe them for several days – Second child eats a bug in the playground. No, they'll be okay. Keep an eye on them. Third born eats a bug in the playground. High five yourself. They ate dinner and it was protein. So <laughs> our standards, I will admit as parents, do tend to slip the more children that we, we create. Um, and so, yes, our four-year-old has different rules than what our eldest son had when he was also four. But it's really hard to police when you've got, you know, a number of children and multiple devices so I think the most important boundary parents can establish is what? Know what are the perils and the pitfalls of the app and the tool that they are using. Um, then I think we need to have boundaries around when. So what times of the day can devices be used? So we've got some parameters. Screens all have to be turned off at least 60 minutes before they go to bed. Um, that's a hard one for us as adults, but we try and walk the talk as well. Um, we have very limited rules on what they can access before school because, again, rapid-fire, fast-paced action um, can dysregulate their nervous systems and make it really hard to then sit in the classroom and watch a, a teacher or engage with a teacher. Um, we've got boundaries around where devices go. So we've got some no-go tech zones, you know, meal areas, bedrooms, bathrooms and the car. I just want to underline that bit because I have to say in our previous conversations, this is the one bit that I took and and stuck with me which oh, was so the the screens should be in a location you know before when we were when we were kids or at least me growing up you know the the phone was in the kitchen you want to talk to anybody yes, on the wall yeah your mum was always a meter away you know it was <laughs> on the wall in the kitchen there was a long stringy cable but you couldn't get very far um and the tv very particular place the computer very particular place and what mobiles have given us is this ability for it to permeate every single square inch of our lives. And one of the healthiest kind of rituals or habits that I've adopted since meeting you is going, right, this location here, this is where screens live, this location. And it's close to us as a family. So if anything happens, you know, we are right here. Like I am right here. You're not sat alone in your bedroom. Um, and, and also for me, you know, the screen doesn't belong to you. This, this, this device is ours. It's either the family device or it's mine and your father's device. We're sharing it with you, but it lives right here. It lives between this period. Of time. So, you know, there's no ownership here for you. 
That location piece, though, has been a game changer. How do you use that? So we call them um, digital depots. So we have set spots where all devices have to go at their their digital sunset or their digital bedtime. So the, the laptop um, for my oldest son, now he's in high school, has to have a laptop. He's also just got a phone. Um, so that has to go. We have invested um, in, uh, they're called in-charge boxes. So they're large metallic boxes that are lockable. Um, so we pop all the devices in and we take a key. Not that our kids would be sneaking out, but I just think it's a good habit. And we often put our devices in. Um, so we don't have their phones in their bedrooms. They have to go off at a set time um, and we keep them there. And can I say the kids really like it? My oldest son had a sleepover and a couple of his mates, now they're in high school, also brought their phones. And I wasn't comfortable um, with them having access to phones at night. Why? We know that about 87% of cyberbullying takes place at night, not just because kids have unsupervised access, but because the way the brain works at night. Um, at night, we know the thinking part of the brain, so the prefrontal cortex that helps regulate their behaviour, it's exhausted at night. It's worked hard all day at school, paying attention to their teachers. It switches off. And part of the brain that fires up at night is the amygdala, and it's the emotional hub of the brain. This is why we have more arguments with our partners and our kids at night than any other time in the day, because our prefrontal cortex switches off and our amygdala turns on. And it's a recipe for disaster. So I didn't want that on my watch while I had other people's children at our house. So we have the in-charge box. My son bravely said, we've got to put our phones in the box at this time. And I thought they would whinge or complain or roll their eyes. They happily did it. And two of the boys went home and told their parents about it. And I then got a text message from their parents saying, what's this box? Where do we get it? Why? They had lived experience of how good it felt not to have their digital appendage like right near them and be constantly on it. But also um, safety. I think, you know, yeah, you know, the greatest gift you can give somebody is a boundary where, you know, we are in charge here. We have your back. This is where the boundary is. We'll help you in sticking within it. You know, there's a sense of safety, I think, as a child where you go, oh, my goodness, thank you. I don't have to navigate this very overwhelming, confusing world by myself. You've got this. This is where the boundary is. You're holding it. I don't have to. You know, that's just for a child to not have to carry that. Yeah. And I want to say, Carl, you've, you've triggered a whole lot of things there saying that. So I, I, I firmly believe that families have to co-establish boundaries it's not about giving kids a phone contract or a gaming agreement. They don't work unless the child or the teens had some buy-in on what those boundaries are and they've been co-established. I also want to remind parents that no child or teenager is probably ever going to come to you and say, mum, dad, I love my really strict screen time limits. Awesome job. High five. I can say boundaries are like vegetables. You might just have Your to wait kid, 30 years for that. <laughs> you might. And that's parenting, isn't it? Like you're in it for the long game. Like you, you have to remind yourself. But, you know, if you want to thank you, you, hang on a while. Yeah. yeah, a long time. But they're never going to come to you and say, Mum, Dad, I really love the, the vegetables that you make me eat every day. Thank you for providing me, you know, a diverse range of nutritious meals. They're just never going to do that. And the same thing is true with their boundaries. They do not want them but they need them. They do not like them all the time, but they need them. And I think, again, I would rather my sons be angry, frustrated that I've put in place and enforced, because we all know establishing the boundaries is the easy bit, consistently enforcing it and sticking by them is the hard bit. But I would much rather my sons be agitated and frustrated at me that we've enforced these boundaries 
than them experiencing some of the unsavory, you know, dire things that I hear all too often are happening to our kids and, and, and teens because there was a, a, just a sheer absence of boundaries in the first place. There's a beautiful poster that's up in our local library and I see it every time I walk into the library with, with my kids and it's a poster for kids and it just it says something along the lines of, you know, the World Wide Web is is an amazing place to have adventures. It's an amazing place to to discover new things. But just like the world outside, you know, you need don't go wandering off alone. Like you need people mm. next to you. You need people who who have got your hand, who have got your back. You don't just wander off into new terrain alone. And I love that analogy because you wouldn't yeah. you wouldn't send your child out onto the streets and go, you know, just navigate away off you go come back three hours later and tell me what you found at at certain ages obviously you know we'd never toss our kids in the ocean and say just teach yourself to swim but I feel like we've done this with technology because again we're under this misguided notion that our kids are tech savvy and they're digital natives and they're growing up in this world they often don't have the brain architecture in fact we know they they just don't have the brain architecture to moderate what they're doing this is why they post stupid things online that they later regret um, this is why they 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 send nasty messages um, because they're not cognizant. I call it their digital DNA. They're not thinking about the long term ramifications of what it is that they're sharing because that prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed and it most certainly is offline at night. So again, we just I think we have to come back to again working within our biology and and working the way that we know we are designed to operate as humans and then integrating tech into that appropriately. I'm curious about your take on wearables. Um, I feel like it's one of these things that's kind of snuck in. Um, everybody seems to have one now, either a watch or, you know, and all of a sudden, it you know, a text message pops up or an email pops up. And at first I thought, okay, well, that's maybe less intrusive than, you know, a mobile phone that you keep taking out of your pocket. You know, it, maybe it's less of an interruption. I've never had one and, and, I, and I have no intention. Now I feel like it's just, I don't know, it's just another sneaky way of now it's attached. Like now, now you can't avoid it. It's on your wrist. And people, you know, I ask my friends about them and they say, well, you know, there's my steps and there's my sleep and there's a lot of reasons why it's useful. What's your take on whether it's a positive development or whether it's a step back in terms of reclaiming some of our boundaries so full disclosure like you i've never bought um do not want a smartwatch i know for me personally it would be a source of distraction um i also um and again the research is still in its infancy i have some reservations about having a wi-fi enabled device so physically close to my body the research in this space is is as I said, not yet fully formed, but there are some possible, you know, we are in many regards conducting a bit of a living experiment. We don't know what the long-term impact of having literally Wi-Fi on our physical body for some of us 24-7. So I've opted not for a smartwatch a bit for the same reasons you have. Um, I do, however, wear a wearable ring. It's an aura ring that tracks my sleep and my steps um, and some other physical biometrics that I find really helpful. Now, I'm a self-confessed nerd, so I love research and data 
Um, and so for me, it's really helpful as someone who's struggled with insomnia for many years, um, being able to look at the adjustments I was making to my sleep routine and the corresponding benefits, you know, conducted my own little sort of quasi experiments. Um, that data was really helpful. But the research that is coming out on wearables is telling us that it's nuanced. If wearing a fitness tracker is going to make you obsessive, um, if you're going to track your sleep and the, the accuracy is still questionable on some of these, you know, some research suggests that they're nowhere near, you know, at, at 100% accuracy in terms of the data they're giving you. And if you make decisions, if your mood is formulated on your sleep score or the number of steps you're taking, sometimes it can have a, a more detrimental impact than what we would otherwise hope. So I think it really depends on your personality, um, your temperament um, and what purpose it serves. I have reservations about smartwatches for a whole host of reasons, but it was a story a client shared, again, permission to share. He was telling me he was off for an early morning cycle ride, um, having a, a great time. He's, he was engaging in what I call mind-wandering mode. He was not thinking about work at all. And then he got the, the vibration on his wrist. And there's a phenomenon they're calling a phantom vibration, vibration syndrome. And people literally now have physiological tingling that their watch is ringing or vibrating and it's nowhere near their body. Um, so this particular gentleman, still cycling, and it was in the early hours of the morning, so still wasn't fully lit, but looked down at his illuminated screen and he got a text message from a colleague. He tapped on it just to, to make it disappear and hit a pothole sustained a very, very serious injury, like very serious injury on his bike just by that brief period of being distracted. Now, the work message was not urgent at all. So questioning, should he have had some guardrail, pardon the pun, some guardrails up around the number of notifications he's receiving? Should it have been on do not disturb mode? Should the colleague have been sending, you know, that very early morning um, email? So I think I, I just, I, again, I don't know if they're necessary and not criticizing people that have them. But for me, I know it would be a huge source um, of distraction. And my husband also bought me a really lovely watch for our one year wedding anniversary. And he, I don't think he'd ever buy me anything again if I replaced that with a smartwatch. So, that's <laughs> so for the, the sake of the sake of your relationship, the, the watch yeah. will, and, watch will and long term gifting. Yes. <laughs> All right. Final question. What's the what's the one thing if somebody sat there right now, just silently nodding, thinking I am I'm so overwhelmed. I, I can't keep on top of every message that comes my way, every email that comes my way, every piece of information that comes my way. I feel like I'm drowning and I don't know how to reset this. It feels like, you know, as you said, trying to catch, uh, you know, water that comes out of a fire hydrant in a tiny little cup. What's one thing, one thing that they can put into place that would hopefully just give enough oxygen to be able to tackle the rest? The basics work if you work the basics. So pick a, a micro habit, pick something that you know you can achieve that will yield the biggest benefits. So some of the simple things that I find, and I hear this from clients, I've heard this from readers of the book, really simple things like having a digital bedtime keeping your phone out of your bedroom so you're not tempted to pick it up first thing in the morning or last thing before night or before you go to sleep. Um, putting in place some little micro habits, another really popular one that I, I cannot believe how many people tell me is one of their favorites, is putting our phone somewhere where we cannot see it while we're trying to do our focused work. 
the University of Austin, Texas did a study and found that even if our phone was on silent and even if it was face down, if it was in our line of sight, it adversely impacted our cognitive performance. And it was estimated by around 10%. So put bluntly, seeing your phone makes you 10% dumber. So again, not for the whole day, you don't need to put it, you know, hide it and, and not get it out, but just putting our phone somewhere where we cannot see it, when we don't want to be distracted by it. Um, I call them a digital depot, but having sort of designated spots in your house where devices go at set times of the day. Um, we know even just the presence of a phone on a meal area, like on a, a dining table, whether we're at a restaurant or at home, greatly diminishes the quantity and quality of conversation that we have. Um, a study was done with restaurant goers and one group had to put their phone in a basket outside the rest or outside the table where they were seated and the other group had it at the table. They asked the, the, the restaurant goers about their perception of the meal, their enjoyment of the experience and overwhelmingly the group that didn't have their phones reported a far more enjoyable experience. So again, just like such a simple thing as just putting it somewhere where we can't see it can have a really tangible difference. Mm -hmm. My my favourite restaurant here in Sydney, actually, you have to hand your phone in before you walk in, yeah. in a little locker. Well, I, yeah, the Opera House. I know some comedians recently insisted that people use, they're called yonder pouches, so they're a lockable pouch, um, that all people attending a particular um, comedy had to put their phones in the pouch before they walked in um, to the venue. Wow. Chrissy, thank you so much. I know you're... you're on the trail right now in terms of your book and thank you for making the time it's such an incredible contribution to this conversation that i think is only going to become more and more urgent over time so thank you for staying the course and for mapping out for the rest of us thank you i really appreciate this opportunity um this is a topic i just we, we've got to get this right for our for ourselves and also for the kids and people behind us because we're the first generation, as you said, trying to figure this out on the go. And I think we've got enough lived experience and enough evidence to say that there are things we can do to course correct this. Because um, if not, yeah, it, these devices will rob us of our time and attention. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.